You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In a moment, Veronica will introduce our guests. And I can tell you, you want to listen on to hear what she has to say about how to nail a pre-auction offer. The biggest visitation is in the first seven days. So the highest engagement is in that first 10 days. And that's when the buyers are kind of, they've seen the property, they come back for the second time, they've fallen in love with it. They're actually hot to trot. It sounds a bit weird, but if you give them sometimes a bit longer, um, they sometimes come back three and four and five times. And that's when they start seeing things wrong with the property and they go, oh, actually, or something else comes on the market. So you tend to, you can lose buyers. Then stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This week, we're picking the brains of Mary Ann Cronin, Director and Sales Agent at Phillips Panzer Donnelly, based in Sydney's eastern suburbs. Marianne has been a specialist in the Bondi and Bronte area since she started in real estate over 15 years ago now. She maintains strong ties with the community and is very active across a wide range of local committees, as well as being president of the Bondi Chamber of Commerce and ambassador, and here we go, how do I say this? Wairoa. Wairoa Special School. What is that? So the Wairoa School is, um, it's a wonderful school. I've been involved for close to 15, 16 years. Uh, It's a special needs school. Um, It's one of the main ones in the eastern suburbs. They've got about 65 kids at the moment, ranging from sort of uh, year one all the way to year 12. Um, It's beautiful. And yeah, I got involved at a fundraising stage and um, have been quite active for a while. And so they've made me their ambassador, which I'm very proud to be. nice. Prior to real estate, Marianne worked as an investment banker in London, a background that enables her to provide clients with valuable insight into the financial aspects of property transactions and investment. So you've got more than one string to your bow. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me, Veronica. It's a pleasure to be here. You've worked in the eastern beaches and eastern suburbs for so many years. Is there anything that buyers do that still surprise you? Oh, yes, heavens above, yes. And it's even the experienced buyers. I mean, we recently dealt with a couple who would be in their 80s and they've obviously bought and sold before. And we, in throughout the negotiation process, my, my colleague Lauren actually said to me, she said, they just don't know how to buy property. They were making firm offers but not following through and then at the last minute completely withdrawing interest. So they were just not engaging on a realistic level. It was just like, wow, do you not get, the whole process. It was quite interesting that somebody who'd obviously been through a number of times had really no concept of what they were meant to be doing. That is quite fascinating. Somebody can get to their 80s and I'm assuming they've bought and sold a number of properties in their decades of living or decades of adulthood <laughs> and they still don't quite know what to do. 
I think part of it was they probably their last transaction might have been a number of years ago mm-hmm. and they probably hadn't got involved in that uh, negotiation prior to auction, which does actually baffle a few people, I must admit. In the eastern suburbs and across Sydney, it's all about auction, auction, auctions. We talk a lot about how to bid at auction, what strategies, what yep. tactics to use, but what actually does anyone really talk about buying before auction and what's involved with that process? Yeah, it's a really good Question. We'd love I mean, to hear more about that. Were they waiving cooling off rights when they bought, you know, 20 years ago? Probably I mean, not. Yeah, and I mean, mm. I guess what percentage of offers nowadays have to waive their cooling off rights? Well, in the eastern suburbs, 100% of it is unconditional. So if you're looking to negotiate before auction, you have to be prepared to put your pen on the dotted line and put your cash hard down. So you're talking there about how all offers now, 100% of them, are going with a 66W. I mean, what what is the right way or what is a good way for buyers to approach a pre-auction offer? Well, I guess there's a number of ways. It depends on the competition. Um, So, I mean, look, if there's a number of interested parties, the offers are going to go backwards and forwards until you get to that final last man standing and that's when a 66W goes on a contract. We're very transparent in our negotiations. All offers must be in writing. So we take offers which are still conditional via email. So everything, there's an email trail which can be presented to the vendors and until you get to that very last man standing, who's the one everybody else says, right, I'm out, then that is when the 66W um, name on a contract and 10% deposit check comes into the office and, and exchanges. Sorry, just for the listeners, the 66W is the certificate that the solicitor or your conveyancer will sign that means that you can waive the cooling off period mm. because if you are going to be buying an auction, like a property that is meant to be going to auction, you're actually going to be buying that prior to auction, you need to be able to the vendor is not going to take, uh, a, you know, midway through an auction campaign, they're not going to basically take the property off the market and give it to you with a five-day cooling off period. You have to buy under auction conditions. So it's the way that they replicate the auction conditions mm. is by getting the solicitor or the conveyancer to give you that certificate, um, which does mean you have to get your contract checked by a solicitor beforehand. Mm, definitely. Is there any ways that buyers can present that offer in a better way that as a real estate agent, you know, these guys are more serious and you're more enticed to actually take that offer than just an email offer, which is, can be pretty easily made. Oh, look, I mean, somebody can put an offer on a contract and bring it into our office and present that with a 66W. Having said that, if there are other interested parties, our duty is to the vendor. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, our duty, we're being paid by the vendor, so our job is to get the highest price possible. Mm-hmm. If there's another $10,000 out there that's above that offer that's on a contract, it's our duty to go and get it. So before we accept or take that firm offer to the vendor, which is on a contract, we still have a duty of care to go to all the other parties and say, this is what we've got on a contract. If you are interested, you also need to put that offer on a contract or come, you know, come in, email, whatever it is, but you need to increase that offer. There's so much underlying this pre-auction offer mm. thing, right? So there's market conditions, mm. you know, for starters, there's, there's, uh, whether it's highly competitive or not, yep. whether the buyer is initiating this offer process or whether the actual agent is mm. initiating this offer process. But every agent has a different process that they go through with buyers in order to get there. Now, mm. I know I've actually bought, my, personally I bought from you. You did? Yes, a few years ago. Yes, I still remember. Yes, <laughs> uh, prior to auction. And so, you know, I, I went through that process with you. But can you explain, because this is only one way of yep. doing it, and there is no rule, no mm. laws around how this is conducted. So do you want to explain how you guys go about it and some of the alternatives that you've come across with other buyers, other, sorry, other agents? Yeah, and, and we, we get this all the time, actually, because um, 
Um, this year, so far to date, we've sold 158 properties as of today, and of those, only 10 were at auction. So the majority of our properties are sold prior or post-auction. I'm going to kick in and ask a question on this yeah. one. So 158 properties sold to date. We're, we're currently recording in April. April. Um, you uh, are all of those, were well, all of those put on as an auction campaign and so most of them have been sold prior to auction, is that what you're saying? Pretty much all of those would have been put on an auction campaign. There was a couple that might have been off market or on the back of another auction but pretty much all of those were uh, auction campaigns. And, and how many... I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but how many would, would those offers initiated by the agent, so you identifying that you've really only got one strong buyer on it and you want to get in before it gets to auction versus a buyer initiating that? Oh, most of the time it's a buyer. Yeah. So we work very closely. I mean, I think that's the most important thing and that's one of the reasons why Phillips Panzadonli probably uh, have a good reputation in transparency and their buyer work. Um, we don't just stand at the door and take names. It's really important, especially in the changing market, that you interact and engage with your buyers on an almost daily, weekly basis throughout the campaign. So the buyers don't just get one phone call, oh, what did you think of the property? Thanks, buy. <laughs> It'll be, what else are you comparing it to? What else are you looking at? Are you interested? Do you want to come back and have another look? Look, um, how can we help you? Here's the strata report. Let's engage. Let's engage. Let's get you across the line because we know we can see what other properties they've looked at. We've got the history because they've been and looked at probably 20 or 30 other properties with us yeah. so we can help them attain their dream. Do you find that's a problem that some buyers are making that they're not showing enough interest in the property and all of a sudden it's sold and you've spoken to them and you've gone, well, you know, it, we actually thought it was going to go to auction, but then, like you say, 90% of your properties have sold prior to auction. So we do make it very clear to all the buyers, especially if they come in through opens, um, look, we do have an auction date. Having said that, we make it very clear at open for inspections and in our callbacks. If the vendor has told us they're keen to sell before auction, we'll make it very clear from day one. Very often the vendors say no offers in the first week. They do want to get some level of feedback before considering those offers prior to auction, mm -hmm. but certainly we make it quite clear. And before any final uh, exchange of contracts happens, all interested parties, emails, inquiries, et cetera, get phone calls and emails from us to disclose that. And when does it actually get determined within the business or with that we're actually going to sell now? We've had an offer that you know, the vendor's keen to take. And when you've got that offer, let's say it's 1.2, mm. what do you do as an agent at that point? Do you then email around and say till 5 o'clock you've got to make an offer? I mean, what's your process there? So it, it sometimes comes down to the vendor and to the timetable of the other buyers. So we have to be mindful of all of okay. that. We might have a buyer who say, look, my finance is going to be in place tomorrow. Can you give me 24 hours? Yes, so we have to kind of respect that. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk to the vendor and say, look, ultimately it's the vendor's decision about when they want to close the deal. Mm -hmm. So the vendor might turn around and say, I actually want this shut down today. I don't care about Mr Joe Blow tomorrow. I've got the bird in the hand I've got today. And we have to respect that and act under his mm -hmm. or her uh, instructions. But we all we can do is give them the best advice. And if we sincerely think this buyer is, is for real, they've got all their finance in place, we generally try and check that. We've got a great financial partner in Shore Financial and they'll obviously help out as much as they can to make sure our buyers are ready to go is is to get them all in place and, and yeah, get the best price for the buyer. For the so minute. this is sort of interesting. I wonder, so we're talking at the beginning of 2018 now where the market slowed down, mm. there's, you know, you know, we all talk about clearance rates and they're in the 60s at the moment. A year ago, the, the clearance rates were in the 8th percentile. Were you having the same conversations in the early days of the campaign at that time? Has that changed at all? 
Um, look, back then, of course, we had a lot of people who'd missed out on a property with us only a couple of weeks ago and they were keen to secure something mm. ahead of auction. So we had almost a reverse but still yet yeah, really wanting to lock that down. I think in some ways buyers... Um, Auction scares them a little bit because it's that uncertainty of competing with other people, whereas actually having a secure knowledge of securing a property beforehand and having a price, it makes them feel more comfortable. Um, so last year we still had that process because we had quite, you know, healthy competition on properties. So you had buyers, you know, sometimes in the first or second day putting offers forward that was too early for the vendors. So that's when it's like, you know, stop, stop, give us at least a week before we can actually put something forward. So there, it, it's happened in both ways, but just for different reasons, I think now. And if the number one aim is to get, you know, the vendor, I guess, the best outcome, mm. do you as a business think that getting a bit of competition prior to an auction gives the vendor the best opportunity to get, I guess, buyers are behaving maybe not like they would at auction and you're getting potentially higher prices and fear of missing out with a lot of buyers? Definitely. And and if you look at the stats and it's, it's you know, we're very much looking at our stats as when, when we get the most visitation on a property, when we get the most inquiry, and it's very easy to look at the domain or real estate graphs, yep. the biggest visitation is in the first seven days. Mm-hmm. So the highest engagement is in that first 10 days and that's when the buyers are kind of, they've seen the property, they come back for the second time, they've fallen in love with it, they're actually hot to trot. It sounds a bit weird, but if you give them sometimes a bit longer, um, they sometimes come back three and four and five times, and that's (laughs) when they start seeing things wrong with the property and they Mm. go, oh, actually, or something else comes on the market. So you tend to can lose buyers, whereas finding them when they're really keen and gung-ho in that first little while can actually produce better results for the vendor. I guess whenever anyone sees a, you know, you know, PPD property on there, they know that your process is that it's probably going to sell prior to auction. So, you know, do you find that your buyers are more are used to your process and they're like, well, I missed out on the last one. That sold before auction. So next time you list a property that they want as well, they're more enticed to make an offer early. I think um, also our buyers are used to um, communicating with us a lot. So there we have a strong line of communication with our buyers and so they feel comfortable with that process because they've been through it before. And look, some of them are like, damn, you again. I wish I didn't have to buy from you because they know they're going to be forced to pay a really strong price. Um, there's some agents out there that are very happy just to stand at the front door, wait till the auction comes and hope that people turn up at auction and probably not call the buyers you know, more than once during the campaign. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that shows in, in how their results often are. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're talking really about working it. You yeah. Know, you're <laughs> it's working the buyers and the vendors. It's, yeah. you know, communicating. I mean, we, we have a call tally in our office and um, we actually compete to see who can make the most calls because, A, you do want to engage and you can see because we all make notes when we actually engage um, with people in the database, mm-hmm. how many times you call them, how many times you call your vendor when you have vendor meetings because it's really important to have those face-to-face meetings. You, you can't just sit. I mean, we get paid a lot of money to sell property, so we should be working hard to make sure we get the best outcome mm-hmm. all round for the buyers and for the sellers. And what do you think some of the mistakes buyers are making? You know, we've been in a very hot market now for five, six years. Um, you know, I guess there's people who have missed out. You know, mm. if there's six people wanting to buy the one property, you know, that's five people who missed out. So that's five people who are still looking. You know, do you find that, you know, people have been struggling with things like overconfidence or, you know, they're making offers that potentially are too high or? 
Yeah, I think there's a number. There's It's probably a few different little things that buyers. I mean, A, I think it's trust in the agents. And I, I get that because there are some agents who don't um, induce trust in buyers out there. Um, I think if they, if you can build a good relationship with a buyer, you can help them get to where they want to be because they feel that they actually, you know, truly trust what you're saying. You've, you're being transparent. There's an email trail. This is what we do. You talk to them all the way through the campaign. You, you're honest and transparent about what the other competition's doing, other properties that are on the market. And you're honest and transparent with, you know, building reports or strata reports to say here, the information's here. This is what's wrong with the property. This is what's right with the property. Not trying to sugarcoat it all and just being straightforward. And I think a lot of buyers don't believe enough of what the agent, we try and provide as much information as possible, but sometimes that level of, I'm not quite sure I believe you. I guess because there is quite a variety Mm. of different types of agents out there and therefore if a buyer's been burnt, for instance, they're going to tar everyone with the same brush Mm. and it often takes them a long time, a lot of losses before they've actually worked out that, oh, actually not all agents are the same. It's funny, I've had some buyers say to me that, oh, you know, an agent they might pick a particular agent, maybe it's you, you know, for argument's sake, and it might be, oh, well, Mary Ann's called me a lot of times, so I know she's got no interest. And I always have a bit of a chuckle about that because I know that there are some very, very professional agents out there that will, as you describe, have regular communication with Mm. their buyers because that's them doing their job. Mm. And if that same buyer has been dealing with an agent, like when I spoke to yesterday, he said, so yesterday was a Monday, and I asked him how his campaign was going in this particular property. He said he hadn't spoken to any of his contract holders since last Wednesday. And I'm like, you know, there's not that many buyers floating. Things don't you need sell to them. speak to all of them. <laughs> yeah, they don't sell themselves at the moment. I mean, I was a bit surprised by that and thought, bingo, you know, if we're going to go for that, there's a good opportunity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if a buyer's comparing, say, the way you communicate with them versus an agent like him that's mm-hmm. not calling, sometimes they might misinterpret that. Do you pick up on that? Do you, How do you handle that? Uh, I guess because we're building relationships. I mean, yes, you're right, there are some people who don't trust and I think that's when you have to work a little bit harder with that particular buyer or in some cases you go you know what you're obviously very set in your ways so wishing you all the best I'm going to keep giving the information (laughs) but if you're not going to believe what I'm saying there's not much I can do Um, but our job is just to keep doing our job and keep Mm. doing it properly that's all we can do. Do you find that sometimes buyers will just shoot themselves in the foot? Yes, they can get a little bit too clever. I'm not going to give you an offer because I don't believe you. And it's like, well, we are about to sell this property. And and I'm trying to give you every opportunity because there is a contract in our office and the vendor has said they want to exchange and they'll shoot themselves in the foot because it's a property they really wanted. Mm. Mm. And they just go, you know what, I don't want to play this game. And it's like, well, it's, it's, it's part of the process. It's part of the process. To, yeah. If you want to buy a property, put your hand up, put your hand in your pocket and pay the best price you want to pay. If you don't want to pay any more, that's a different thing. But if you sort of of go, you know what, I don't want to partake in this process, well, if you went to auction, you'd be putting your hand up the same way. Mm -hmm. So it's actually just replicating the auction process, but it's over phone or email or contract. Which is worse, really. Yeah. Well, it's in some ways it's <laughs> more transparent. Yeah, yeah. But in some ways it's actually there is a bit more transparency, but then you're not looking the buyers, the other buyers in the eye. I think a lot of people underestimate the benefit of an auction under those circumstances. Mm. As a buyer, you know, when you are at the interview telephone, you are relying on what the agent is telling you. Mm. And if you don't believe that agent or, you you know, you're worried about it or whatever, that just adds to the anxiety. So it can actually, you know, quite often buyers trigger this whole process and then, then they realise, oh, shit, mm. <laughs> you know, what have I got myself in for? Working in the eastern suburbs mm. of Sydney, you know, probably one of the premier property markets in the world, if, if anywhere else, 
I mean, I'd love to hear what, what with with buyers and with sellers. You know, how do you think that the things are different in the eastern suburbs to, I guess, other parts of Sydney um, in terms of the type of buyers you're working with and the investors and foreign investors? Oh, look, they're definitely more educated. Um, they've got information at their fingertips. Nearly everyone knows what RP data is. They've got information, APM. They can go and look up when the property was last sold. I mean, I had a lady uh, yesterday who actually said to me she was buying on behalf of her daughter. She lives up on a farm, um, Cessnock or something. And she said, why is this property sold so many times? So she'd gone onto RP Data. She'd actually seen that it had sold a number of times over the last 12 years and she was questioning that process. And it's like, well, my vendors had it for five years and, and you know, she's been very happy there. And it was, but it was really interesting because she was had all the information at her fingertips and I think that's one thing that these buyers in the eastern suburbs have very well educated. There's a lot of information out there and these buyers know how to take advantage and, and arm themselves with that information. And that is a very good question from a buyer, you know, to say why has a property sold so many times mm. if it has transacted a lot? Because the reality is that, you know, well, the average in, in sort of the inner city areas is sort of every seven years that a, a property it's, might transact. It's about four but, or five years now. Yeah. I it's mean, a bit less. And look, sometimes properties do transact a lot because they are crap properties, let's face it. And sometimes they just transact because of the type of property that they are. They're a small unit, for instance, mm. and their entry level. Um, from your perspective, though, all those buyers that have got access to the information, how often do they know how to interpret it, though? Some people overinterpret it. Yeah. And probably read too much into it, like that lady yesterday, there was no reason for that property selling. It was just circumstance. Just natural, it happened. Yeah. Um, so some people overread the information. Um, I think generally, though, um, I think what we try and do is actually put more relevant information out at opens and send when we send our email responses and when we talk to buyers is to give them the relevant information as opposed to them going and sort of looking up um possibly some irrelevant information that might give them. <laughs> so you're curating it. <laughs> well, yeah, just to, you know, to help them make the right decisions. So when you say relevant, what what information do you think is relevant to a buyer? I think relevant information to a buyer is what's happening in the building, so having an up-to-date strata report and having that available mm-hmm. at a reasonable price for the to for the buyers to download. And if there's negative things in that strata report? Make it clear. You make it clear? Very clear. Mm-hmm. So if there's some special levies happening on the building, there was one we sold uh, in Victoria Road, an apartment, and they were going to get the whole roof redone, mm-hmm. and that was going to be a cost of about $10,000 per unit. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to be up for this cost, bear in mind. The owner's paying some of it. They've already had some of the special levies, but the balance is going to be yours, and it's very uh, it's very obvious in the strata report. So mm-hmm. actually make that clear to the buyers before they download the strata report. I mean, I had a client recently, mm. just a couple of weeks ago actually, was uh, almost ready to put the unconditional offer mm. with the 66W and hadn't done the strata report check. <laughs> and there was $70,000 of repairs in mm. the next two years. They didn't have the $70,000, mm. um, you know, and it's, it's such a simple check to do just to actually read and, and really digest it. But, you know, sometimes you just think, well, if other people are making offers and yeah. you just go with the herd, don't you? Well, that's it. They just, a lot of times, and how often do you find this, that buyers assume other people have done their due diligence and they're just sort of riding that wave. <laughs> and I think that's a hell of a lot of hope on a transaction of multi-million dollars in many cases. Oh, definitely. And my, my own brother actually bought at auction without doing a building report, without actually having the contract looked at. I guess one of the hardest things for <laughs> agents is you've got to, be on both sides. So one, you've got to find listings, so people who want to sell and then who've got to sell perfectly great property, you know, I guess in the eastern suburbs, 
You know, there's probably reasons why they want to hold on to that property for as long as they can, keep status quo. Um, but then you've also, you know, but finding the buyers for that property is not a hard thing. So how do you actually motivate people to sell? So we we ride a very fine line. I call it the tightrope um, because, of course, the vendors often don't tell you their full situation often. You know, mm-hmm. they may be hiding what their real true reasons for the sale. Um, I had a case recently when I'd been dealing with his family. I actually helped them buy the house uh, 10 years ago and it wasn't till we got to the pointy end of the negotiation that I found out they were going through a divorce, which mm. was very, very sad. But, you know, I didn't realise that was the reason for the sale. So, you know, you're balancing that vendors and their background for why they're selling with the buyers and them telling us what they really, really want or how much they're really, really prepared to pay or what their finances really are. So it's trying to manage that line between Mm -hmm. the two and what's the vendor's real figure. You know, we know what the wish figure is because that's what we talked about when we first spoke to them. But when it comes down to, especially in the changing market, is what does it take to get this sale across the line from both sides? And did you find that, did that property sell on the market or did, you know, because a lot of buyers are not even aware that a lot of properties go off market, that they never even go on realestate.com.au or domain. They don't even know that they, you know, that even happens. And a lot of agents, you know, did did that go on the market and actually sell properly or did it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Are you selling many properties at all off market or? Um, We probably have had, I'd say there might be 20, 15 to 20% possibly. Okay. Maybe a little bit less of what we've done this year. Um, but yeah, there's and sometimes sizable chunk. Still right? a really good chunk. I mean, some of them happens on the back of a sale. Like we had one in Salisbury Street in Watsons Bay, and we broke the record for a two bedroom unit in Watsons Bay. You know, two point one million. Um, and the one below went on the market, and we sold it. We had a number of the underbidders who wanted yep. to buy it, so that sold with no official, you know, we had showings, but we mm-hmm. didn't officially, we had a couple of photos and went to our database. And what's, you know, we get asked about off-market a mm. lot and, you know, I've got various opinions on, on off-markets, but what would you say is a main motivator of somebody to list off-market as opposed to go through a campaign? They don't want the neighbours knowing. Uh, they want to do it quietly. Un- unfortunately, what what a lot of people don't realise is, yeah, we can we can do off-market sales. We can get you a price, but will it be the best price? And this is, as you say, a multi-million dollar asset. If you're talking about something that's worth $2 million and you can sell it for $2 million, but, you know, if you go to auction or you go through a marketing campaign and you might sell before auction and you're going to get 2.2, now $200,000 is a lot of money. $100,000 yeah. is a lot of money. Let's face it, $10,000 is a lot of money. Yep. So... You've got to really sort of weigh up, I think, the pros and cons. Do you want to go off market and get an average price? And, you know, you might strike it lucky and get somebody who's just missed out, but you certainly not to get that level of competition um, that a market, a whole marketing campaign can do. Do you sell every off-market opportunity you have? No. Do you sell them all? No, not necessarily. So you just mentioned then around selling an apartment in Watson's Bay mm. and a new record. Mm. One of the things I would love to get your thoughts on is the shifting reality for buyers and that paying $2 million for an apartment in Watson's Bay is, is kind of the new norm and why are people now looking to make apartments their new homes and downsize the element to that as well? Basically just how the shifting dynamic mm. of buyers is. Well, I guess if you look at it, we've got a growing ageing population. They're living longer, they're living healthier lifestyles, so they're not going into retirement homes until they're in their 80s and 90s and some of them, you know, 
well after that. Um, so so you've got people who are in a big home that's got stairs that are probably going, I really don't, and I've got a garden and just four, five bedrooms, whatever, really want to get out of that. But a nice apartment with a bit of a view, a nice outlook, um, a bit of a terrace, as long as I've got parking and access to some public transport. And it's interesting. I mean, Watson's Bay used to be considered quite a way out, but it's got a beautiful village atmosphere. You've got the harbour, the ferries just increase the number of services there. So it's actually beautiful place to like move to. Like a little to. country town, isn't it? It is a gorgeous little <laughs> village, a fabulous little village. And are you seeing a lot of downsizers kind of coming in and now does wanting, I, can't, I guess, a beautiful apartment yeah. in a small block of Art Deco units yeah. with a view, with no stairs? Is that kind of a growing Def, dem- demographic? Very much so. And that's not just in the harbour suburbs but also in the coastal suburbs. I mean, we had um, one in Tamarama that was yeah. uh, first floor, but gorgeous three-bedroom apartment uh, that was just, it was last year, but it was just under $3 million. And that was a guy who um, already had an investment apartment on Bondi Beach but lived out uh, in the Burbs but was looking at his retirement and saying, hey, you know, I can just see myself sitting there. You know, it's close to everything. I can do the Bondi Tamar Walk, keeps me healthy, and it's still close to the city so I can commute in. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, it is definitely a growing market. And it's not just the junction. It's funny because you used to see the junction with all the high-rise properties um, and Darling Point even of being where a lot of the downsizers go to. Yeah. But I think they're starting to see that there are more interesting locations that's not necessarily with lots of other older people that are still in those sort of coastal areas that gives them access to, you know, a vibrant lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And not as dense either. So, mm. I mean, Darling, Darling Point is full of apartments mm. and there's like one cafe. Mm. <laughs> it's this, the, you've got a lot of density without the, actually the lifestyle the, that goes yeah. with that. You've actually still got to get in your car to get anywhere mm. and it's quite incredible. And certainly Bondi Junction is the opposite of that. You've got everything on your doorstep. Mm. There's smaller boutique blocks and Bellevue Hill's been a big one really, mm. hasn't it, in terms of a lot of people moving out of homes and spending roughly the same amount of money that their home probably would have sold for to for get an apartment. A beautiful apartment with the views over the golf course and, yeah, walk yeah. down and have a round of golf in the morning. So you're not actually, they're not actually saving much money. In fact, any money quite often is the case. Would you Would you agree? Uh, look, I mean, there's some of them, I think some of them, but also there are some that, you know, obviously have sold a larger palatial sort of Bellevue Hill home or a Vaucluse home and going into their home might have been worth four or five million dollars and they're going into a two and a half, three million dollars. So they've still got a bit in there pocket for lifestyle. You've got to love chucking these numbers around, don't you? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's one thing that um, it's called mental accounting. So basically mm. where we make gains from, um, we allocate that. So if we've made $2 million in property, mm. I am more than happy to go put another $2 million into property because I go, well, I've made that money from property. I'm happy to go reinvest it back into mm. property. Do you find that when people are upgrading in a very strong market that people are selling out of properties that were three, four million, and they're happy to then go reinvest that money and buy something at six or seven. Is that a lot of the buyers that are buying at that level, or is it, you know, I guess people taking out six million dollar mortgages? Well, not many people have six million dollar mortgages, but very <laughs> often they've got an asset, but that's going to allow them to to move up to that level. Um, and there's look some very successful people who work in the eastern suburbs that have done extremely well in startups in fintech. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have got some really creative, uh, interesting people in in the space around here that have done very well. So mm-hmm. it's kind of across those levels. But yeah, the the level which used to be, you know, going from a, a $4 million home is, you know, jumping into the $10 million. So th- there is bigger jumps happening in that sort of higher price point. Yeah, because I, I think it's a bit of a misconception I find with a lot of people who don't understand why the property value is worth so much. And a lot of the reason is because people have already made that money in property. And then they've just reinvested in property and they've taken out a mortgage 
and then they've made more money in property and they've just reinvested it. And so this is kind of perpetuating cycle. So people look at it and go, well, why is a house in the eastern suburbs worth 2.5 million? And they think, well, how, what's the mortgage on that? And they're based, they're thinking, well, it's a $2 million mortgage. No. It's not. <laughs> and it's the person's probably got a million dollar mortgage mm. or they've got 500000 And the reason they've got $2 million is if they've made a million dollars on another property. And that's the problem with a lot of people with property values. They don't understand that people haven't got these huge mortgages. They've just made a lot of money on other properties. Mm. Yes, building on the equity they've already had. And you mentioned men- mental accounting earlier, Chris, and that that's a, one of the biases that we we talked about in our first episode of this podcast when we're talking with Simon Russell, who's a behavioural scientist, mm. and he's talking about mental accounting. And that's when you've basically got like different buckets in your brain as to, you know, where you pop different amounts of money. And so I see that with a lot of downsizers. So they may have sold, you know, a big home for argument's sake that, and they got an extra 500,000 they didn't think they were going to get. And so for them, that's like in a separate bucket that's like that's just sort of discretionary and, and then they can chuck that at another property without thinking too much about it because in their minds, well, it was money they weren't going to have yeah. in the first place. So it's like it's still $100,000, guys, slow down, you know. But it is interesting how people compartmentalise the amount of money and, and the decisions and the justifications they use around buying property often at these very, very high levels. And a lot of the older people don't forget a very, they've had very conscious super saving. Mm. So um, I think a lot of our downsizers have got good super behind them, right. which will be interesting to see how the younger generation go forward, especially when you've got lots of startup companies putting all their money into property as opposed to super, whereas in the older generation, it was all about building up for retirement. And I think people are very conscious of the retirement, whereas we've got a different generation now that may find it different when they come to retirement. Very interesting. I mean, you've been in the the mainly in the Bondi, Bronte kind of eastern suburbs market and we've had six years of, you know, tremendous growth, Mm. I guess. Um, We're not very good at remembering Long, the hard times, you know, no. <laughs> and we're not, and we're very short-term mindsets, and we think that you know what's happened in the last year is going to continue, but then the opposite, we then you know get too, you know, concerned about what's going to happen in the next few years. Can you talk about a time when in the eastern suburbs, in your experience, where things were tough and things that weren't selling, and oh, what wasn't selling? Definitely, there was a time actually. It was it must have been just about the GFC, um, and they just announced one of those. It was around Melbourne Cup time because we'd listed the property and I think the interest rates, they generally go up around Melbourne Cup. And <laughs> there was a property, it was it was a pretty, it was a deceased estate and it certainly needed a lot of work, but the house next door had sold for 1.4. We thought this was going to sell for about 1 to 1.2 sort of area and we had nothing on it. It ended up selling for 950. Wow. So it certainly was, I mean, look, not that they had ever made that money, but, you know, the fact that next door sold for that, which was an extraordinary price, it felt like a Mm. big loss. I mean, that's a really, just sorry to cut you off, a really important point. You Mm. haven't actually made the money, have you? Or lost the money. Yeah. And, you know, how many sellers, you know, do you find that they have, even now, do they think that their property is worth 2.7? So they lost mm. 300,000 because they actually sell for 2.4. But, I, you know, I've lost 400,000. Well, you didn't lose 400,000 because your property was never actually worth that amount of money. (laughs) It might have been if we'd have conditions were absolutely perfect in June of last year or something like that, but we're not there. We're in this market right now and the market is what the market is. And this is very interesting because I'm talking to people all the time about this, this idea that market prices are falling. Well, actually, are they falling or is the perception that they're falling? Because there's no parallel universe. And certainly in the areas in which we, you know, operate in these inner Mm. areas of, or say within that 10K radius of of Sydney CBD, 
it's very difficult to get an exact replica mm. of any property. You know, mm -hmm. there's such variety, which is one of the reasons I love it. I find it so fascinating. But, you know, even those apartments, you know, one might be a floor above and they might be exactly the same except for the fact one's got a better view or, you know, one's got a bigger courtyard. And this is where scarcity is so important in being aware of it in terms of pricing. Scarcity is both a good and a bad thing. Obviously, mm. scarcity, you can create or manufacture or, or create the idea of scarcity in order to get action from a buyer. And then there's true scarcity when you've got a unique property, mm. like a lovely, unique apartment in, you what's know, what's his bay for argument's <laughs> sake, yeah. Mm. That whole idea about prices, are they really falling or is the fact that you've had to stop increasing your expectations, is that what's falling? And it's it's probably vendor expectation is still where it was last year and yep. the market has adjusted slightly. So there is a slight gap in for some people um, and that's where communication once again is vitally important between agent and vendor and then agent and buyer yeah i've got a bit of a theory on this but do you think that the more realistic vendors in this market actually do better than mm -hmm. the unrealistic ones definitely because they work harder and i think if you are realistic right from the start and you put a realistic guide on your property um, you're going to engage more with buyers and therefore you're going to create more competition and so you have a better chance of achieving the prices you're looking to achieve. Mm. Um, if you are a quite unrealistic vendor and you start with a really high guide price, so most of the buyers know that guide prices, there's going to be a level of competition above that. So the buyers are going to add on top of what the guide price is. If your guide is too high, your buyers are going to discount your property mm. by assuming that mm -hmm. they're going to want another 10% on top of that. So we're not even going to go near that. Therefore, you lose your buyers in that first crucial seven days mm -hmm. when it's vital. Yeah, then you're playing catch up. And then that's it. I imagine when, you know, you get a call or you knock on a door, I don't know if you do that anymore, but... Uh, <laughs> still do. And they've got this dream place to sell. Mm. You know, what in your mind would be that property in the eastern suburbs that you think this is just a beautiful property, I've got no problems to sell this? What are some of the attributes of that property that you know is just going to be so hot in the market uh, for an investor? Oh, for an investor or for a house? Well, Not one of each. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for me, our house, I know that it's going to sell and I sold one, I think it was about seven years ago. It was the last freestanding, unrenovated, and Pete Starr sold one uh, last year. Uh, ben Buckler. Uh, right on Ben Buckler, sort of with coastal, you've got those full-on beach views and that is the ideal dream place, either that or the fully finished product. So mm -hmm. those two things. Um, obviously, we've sold a few in um, Miramar Avenue, that one that um, Alex just sold for $12 million. Those sort of properties are absolute, you know, incredible trophy homes. That and there are, are a lot of buyers for them? There's an incredible amount of buyers in that trophy home bracket now. It's uh, surprising that, and, you know, those those prices only a short while ago used to be the fives and sixes mm. and we're now sort of tens and twelves um, and probably fifteens. And many out. of those foreign buyers? No. No. They're local. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, everyone thinks that we're going to see a huge rush of Chinese uh, in the coastal markets. Um, the feng shui of breaking water is not positive for the Chinese market. They actually love the Stillwater, which is why you see a lot of Chinese buyers going for the harbourside properties, but they're not as interested on the breaking water of the coastal properties. So that's all up for us. Mm. We can go for it. And just down to the <laughs> pure investor in the eastern suburbs, because when I'm talking to clients, I'm helping them think through what's a good asset when they're coming to the investment point of view. We're looking at, you know, Sydney, Melbourne due to population growth, and we're talking about migration mm. and you know, the limited development in the eastern suburbs, the restriction on supply, I guess, because of that. 
if you were going to look at the eastern suburbs and from an investment point of view, what are some of the attributes that you would like to see? Well, I mean, obviously, I'm Bondi local, so it's beach, beach, beach. Um, I think Bondi and Bronte, uh, Maroubra to a certain extent, Coogee, so all of the beachside suburbs just have a huge amount of interest for young buyers and for investors because they rent out so well. Mm -hmm. That's where the young population are going and that's where a lot of the tenants are going. So any one of the beachside suburbs, parking, balcony, views, all of those are big pluses. Um, Small blocks, everyone loves the small art deco blocks. That's half the charm of the Bondi area because they're all built in the 1930s and 40s. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, it's the charm of it. And what do you think about garden apartments? As an investment, interestingly enough, and I've had this conversation, I have a garden apartment on the market at the moment, and I had a lady ring up and say, I'm looking as a pure investment, so I'm purely interested in return. I said, well, ma'am, I won't say her name, but um, a garden apartment's not going to give you the return. A tenant's not going to pay for the garden. So if you're looking for pure return, you're better off to go for a standard two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment because they're not going to pay that much extra for the garden, mm-hmm. whereas a homeowner is going to because they want a kids or the dog to run around they view or that asset of the garden is is immensely valuable to them. Which yeah. also brings up the question of what sort of return should investors be looking at? It always makes me laugh if someone's going to Bondi asking for a return because like, forget it, go, go somewhere else. <laughs> You're not going to get return. When we're talking about yield, that no. is rental return. Mm-hmm. But in terms of capital growth, yeah. you're going to get excellent return. And in terms of who pushes up prices more, investors or owner-occupiers, the, the garden apartment has got that owner-occupier appeal you just mm. mentioned, and they're the ones that get emotional and push prices up. So in terms of capital growth, and this is the it, it, it contra- or it's counterintuitive in terms of the traditional traditional idea that you've got to get good rental yield in order to make a good investment, you know mm. what I mean? So I think um, it, it's that sort of thinking that I find and that also the understanding of really what's in, what goes into a market, what buyers are really mm. interested in that makes the difference between a good investment and a bad investment. Mm. Well, do you think she was suffering a bit of a, an overconfidence that she was out of her depth, I guess, because I think, you know, a lot of people think they, they've made money on property and if you've made money on property, you assume that you're a good property investor. Or they're using lingo or dialogue that they think is what they should be asking or the questions they should think they should be asking as opposed to the questions I mean, do you really even matter. see that when you see questions and you think, you know, you're coming, pretending you're a great, you know, very experienced property investor, but I know you probably haven't invested before, so maybe just work with us. Well, it's, I love the people who come through and they're constantly asking about what the water rates and the council rates are and I'm like, <laughs> they're the same. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Same. Very little variance. But ask the strata, that's different. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, it's you know, <laughs> it's just some interesting questions and it's, I guess, people of, there's a lot of websites which give you a lot of checklist questions and so, you know, and some people just think they need to go by the book and those questions are going to give them the answers that's going to make that decision easier for them. And it doesn't always make that decision easier. Well, that, that's also about them just trying to make themselves feel better. They realise mm. how, how what a big risk, they, they mm. realise this is an expensive, it's risky, that they, they really should be doing some due diligence, not mm. quite sure what due diligence they should be doing, but this sounds about right. What questions do you find buyers beyond the, the water and their council rates? What questions do buyers ask you that you just sort of roll your eyes and think, oh, don't ask me that one, it's useless? Well, one of the ones which I find interesting is why are they selling? Yeah. Because <laughs> does it really matter why the owner's selling? Because it's there's a price that somebody's going to want to pay for it. So the reason why the owner's selling is not going to make a difference at all to the price. Mm. I mean, unless- it help, though, with the terms of the offer? Like if you wanted to know... You know, if the vendor does want a longer settlement or they want to... It'll be on the contract. 
if you're on the contract. It's yeah. all the information's there. We make that information clear to everyone mm. when we're, you know, the contract's there and, you know, if it's 35 days, we make it clear to everyone that there's a shorter settlement period or mm-hmm. if there's a longer period, settlement period because they haven't purchased yet and they're still looking to purchase. We'll make that clear, but it's just, yeah. I think I've asked that question before and it I made me really reflect on it. And I think why, why we sometimes <laughs> ask that question is... Don't justify some, it. It's rookie. It's some, a rookie error. <laughs> well, some agents are oversharers and, <laughs> um, you know, and I've... I've, I've you know, Look, it's think- true, but the, sometimes they're just bullshitting as well. Yeah. So how can you, when you ask a question, the problem is how can you possibly judge the answer you're getting? Mm. And I think some people think, like, if it's a deceased estate, you're going to get a bargain. No, yeah. you're not. No. Because <laughs> no. everybody wants a deceased estate. Yeah, because yeah. they think they're going to get yeah. a bargain. Yeah. Divorce. <laughs> Everyone thinks divorce, yeah. So they think that forced sale is mm-hmm. going to give them a better deal mm-hmm. because they have to sell. And, and look, that might be the case in sometimes coming into a stretch market. You've got a better um, chance of negotiating harder on the property if there is a forced sale. So I kind of get it. But it doesn't, if there's competition on the property, it's not going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. to the price exactly. yeah, because the competition is going to determine the price, not the reason why that sale is happening. What are some other questions that buyers ask that you think that's not helpful? It won't. I can give you the answer, but it's not going to make any difference. I think um, one of the things that with people who don't have access to the outpaid data is, is when did it last sell? Mm. Um, because if the property sold and it's this, a lot of Europeans do this, I find, is if the property sold five years ago, they think there's an equation that that price equates to now. Oh, yeah. 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 So because it sold for X amount five years ago, that means with the price rises and the square meterage, how many square metres it is, mm. therefore it equals X now. Yeah. And, whoa, it doesn't always add up. And mm. it's not going to work like that. Yeah. If Bondi is up 30%, they bought the property for a million dollars five years ago, it must be worth $1.3 billion. Yep. Yeah. No, it doesn't equate, does it? And also not everything goes up at the same rate. Mm. So I think that's a bit of a surprise to people. Oh, I thought that the rising tide lifts because all ships. Because that, yeah. yeah. But it doesn't. Yeah. And how do you feel about the when people say the Sydney market is going backwards? I think some of the Sydney market has had corrections and I think that we've had probably, it's a bit of supply and demand. I mean, we saw it, we, we look at our stats and say, right, the, really the best times to sell um, is January, May, June and August. The best times to buy is March, October, November, December because that's when you have an oversupply of property, so the prices actually do come down a little bit. So we've had a bit of a correction in March because there was a lot of property on the market pre-Easter. Because everybody looks to get into that hot autumn market, you know. Wow, we would. Everyone came out at Christmas and goes, yes, and and they think, oh, January, February is too early, mm. and it's like, no, it wasn't. January was the best time to sell property, and mm-hmm. that's where we had some of our strongest results, and that's why we had so many sales early on in the year, mm-hmm. because we said to all of our vendors, if you're going to do it, do first block, first cab off the ranks, and those guys did really, really well. And March, the guys that held on and said, no, I'm going to go in March because I think that's, and it's like. They were struggling with the the rest of the stock on the market and competing with buyers having more choice. So does it make you laugh when they say that the Sydney market's down 0.1% last month and, you know, it's such a pointless statistic because it's on such a small Small time frame? Small amount, yeah. And look, you know, there there has been an adjustment. We've seen that in our numbers coming through opens. So at the beginning of the year we had an average of 9.6, I think it was, coming through opens. It's down to about 57 
Um, so, you know, we have, we're having sort of between six and 700 per week uh, through our open for inspections. It's now down to about 300. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly been a drop in the numbers actually coming through opens. And that does reflect a little bit in that competition and will reflect a little bit in price. Do you measure how many people register at your auctions and those sorts of stats as well? We've only had 10 auctions. Of course, I forgot about that. Yes. <laughs> I forgot you're selling the, and everything. <laughs> no, no, that's good. <laughs> What's the point of measuring that? <laughs> oh, dear. And so I think that I, you did mention that you, you collect a lot of stats. What other stats do you think buyers should be relying on that they're not relying on? Look, I think it, it's it's one of those things is actually, I mean, look, buyers are looking to buy all year round, but it's thinking about, you know, everyone likes to second guess the market, but actually sort of thinking about the good times to buy. And, and, and that's why we sort of, especially for people who are looking to upgrade, if you're looking to upgrade, think about putting your property on the market in August, put a three-month settlement or a four-month settlement on your property so it gives you the whole of the spring selling market to make that next move. So you get the top price for the winter months, gives you plenty of cash in your pocket, and you can then pick up some bargains because everybody else has got their property in the market in October and November. Mm-hmm. So it's just trying to be smart and trying to give our vendors and our buyers, of course, you know, advice on how to look at the market and think sensibly about it. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress mistakes that can be avoided. Marianne, can you please help our listeners out here? Can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I Look, I think there's too many buyers. Um, they get the little checklist and the little lists and, and they get too over-analytical. And, and you know what? You're going to be living in the home. You want to love it. You want to move into it. And if you get too over-analytical, and I've seen this with people who rejected the first property they saw, even though it was the perfect property for them, two years later, they're still coming through our opens and still being over-analytical. And you think, but that, if you just open your heart a little bit, let your mind open a little bit to the thought that this could be the one, because a property is going to speak to you. It's, it's a big, big transaction, but it's also your home. So if you walk into somewhere and it sings to you, listen. So you're saying your gut's right? I do. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's, that's the opportunity cost bias there. So that person there's, you know, has, is still, I guess, and loss aversion, is still feeling pain mm. from that first transaction. Mm. Um, and that, that pain doesn't go away <laughs> until they buy. And the last thing they want to do is they've got this unicorn property in their head that mm. they've seen and they know they should have went for it. And, and they're hoping that ever. that unicorn kind of comes back. Two years later, it, it doesn't. And the opportunity cost is now not only buying that good property, which would have been growing for them tax-free, they now have to pay Pay the next one. 10% uh, more. 10% more at least. And, you know, they might have even missed the market because they can't afford to pay 10% more. Mm. Now they've had to move suburbs, et cetera. So, you know. So I've got the violins out. Yeah. (laughs) I actually ran into somebody the other day and they were looking at semis with me six years ago. Oh, don't tell me they haven't bought. Mm -hmm. (gasps) Oh, look. I've come across some bad ones, but six years, that means mm. they missed all the growth. They're pretty much doubled in value. And they're in an apartment. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. They finally bought something, though. No, they just stayed in the same apartment. 
They're renting. Yeah, no, they they own. They oh, own. Right, right, they right. own. At least they had something. They've got. Yeah, they've, they've got a got they've the got the a toehold, yeah. but they just never made that move. And and yeah. that's what I say to people now because there's a number of people who go, I'll just buy another investment property because I can't make it to the house stage yet. Mm. Mm-hmm. The gap between houses and apartments is growing. Yes, exactly right. So the longer you leave that time to go in, if you want to get into a house. Beg, borrow, steal, do whatever you ha- can to get into that market because it is going to escape you if you leave it too long. And buying another investment property is not going to give you a better toehold into that because the investment property is going to grow at a lesser rate than the houses. Well, yeah. it also depends on where they buy that investment property because quite often they're buying them in those riskier areas that Brisbane. aren't performing. Yeah, well, oh, God, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we could. that's another podcast, isn't it, in itself. <laughs> but that's, yes, I find I meet a lot of people and particularly the way that the, and, and Chris can attest to this because, you know, obviously in your mortgage broking business, they don't realise that they're tying up their borrowing capacity Mm-mm. now in underperforming assets and that pulls them further and further away from that house mm-hmm. that they want. And, and you know, talk about... You know, I, find, I actually find that heartbreaking. I really do because they think they're making sensible yeah. decisions and they're actually making really, bad really bad decision. ones. Mm. It's and a really tough one. I mean, they the, the call it the stepping stone strategy. Mm. You've got to get on the ladder. Mm. Um, but what ladder? And, and yeah, <laughs> You've got to get on the same ladder. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's, it's, it's you know, especially it's first-home buyers a lot of the time mm. and mm. Off, and they can't get the home they want, so they go and make an investment. Mm. And that pressure is starting from society. It's yes. from the media. It's from their work, their colleagues, their brothers and sisters are buying. They haven't bought. Their parents. Mm. Um, the sign of success is to get a property. Yeah. Um, and all this is leading them to a decision to just buy any property mm. to get on the ladder where they really want to be heading is to, into a home that they can be. Well, it's not so much. I, I just I want to just go yeah. take a little step back. It's not so much. It's the people who are in an apartment now. Yeah. And they could make the move up to a home. So they've got equity in an apartment. Yeah. But they say I'm going to buy another investment property mm-hmm. because instead, instead of buying instead of buying the home, that's that's the tricky thing that yeah, I've I seen. Yeah, I mean that's and that's that's so they're going for instead of you know selling the investment or even just getting the home, it's the same thing. They probably could have yeah, stretched, stretched themselves. To get the home and and, and sold maybe, the property they're in, yeah, and maybe just delayed moving in a few years mm. until they could afford the mortgage, but they've just they've decided to just to, you know, I'll buy the investment and you know in five years time I'll sell that and get the home, but they mm. don't realise that the the growth on the asset that they want is actually a better asset than mm. the the, yes. the investment they buy, and. I've done when, loads of projections on this and, mm. you know, I actually do a, a presentation called The Truth About Capital Growth because the simple fact is not all properties are alike. Mm. And, you know, and you know, I've shown examples of how, how property, some people have had an investment and I've put inverted commas around that. My rabbit ears you can't see on a podcast. <laughs> but, you know, they've got an investment. It might be somewhere like parts of Brisbane that have absolutely underperformed and are still showing no signs of performing in the next, say, mm. five to ten years. And actually they've ended up, losing money, but because they're, they're showing a modest capital growth, i.e. they might get, you know, 50 grand or whatever over the life of that owning of that property, they've never take away the cost of buying it, the cost of selling mm. it, and the cost of holding it in the meantime, and they're actually made a loss. And it's terrible that and no one's... And they're one... still behind the back burner in Sydney. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. And then there's opportunity costs because mm. they haven't actually invested the money in a growing market. And, and it's really, really horrible because, because people are... Well, this is the elephant in the room. This is the stuff that nobody wants to talk about. Mm. Well, I mean, a lot of people want to talk about it, but they want to talk about it. The other side is you should buy an investment. Yeah. It's hot spotting and, yes. you know, and mm. we get down this, you know, and the investors get taken down the wrong path and 
You know, it is an unregulated market. Then no one's really watching and saying, actually, maybe you shouldn't be buying that. Maybe you should be buying a home and stretching yourself. The easy option is to go and buy the investment. Um, and well, it's easy because there's so many people who are experts <laughs> shoving this, you know, this advice, this well-meaning advice down your throat. Because they're going to make money out of you. Yes. Sorry. And I'm not no, <laughs> no, there were spookers, absolutely. They're, yeah. they're, this is one of the reasons for these podcasts because mm. we want buyers to make good decisions mm. and often the decision is not to buy. In fact, probably more often than not, a good decision is not to buy something. Mm. And I think we want to really hammer that home. It's about getting your advice and your information from the right sources. So, I mean, this is behind our passion for mm. setting this whole podcast up. And, and for listeners, this is the sort of thing you're going to find and hear more of as we progress through more and more episodes where we're going to interview and we're going to have specific episodes on specific topics here so to, to impart this sort of knowledge because it's so true and what you're saying what you've brought up there um, is something that buyers need to understand when they're making these decisions, the cost, the ultimate cost the consequences. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that, it comes down to the you must see this where you think, okay, I've got this person's really interested in this property, you know enough about their situation and you know that this is probably not the right property for them. But, you know, you're on a, I guess, a catch-22. They want to buy it. You probably know it's not the right property for them. You know, do you see that often? I've Look, I sold for a young couple at the beginning of the year. They're one of the first two auctions of the year and um, I've guided them through a number of prospective purchases they've looked at. And they live in Bondi and they always wanted to stay close to the beaches. And they then started, they were getting a bit desperate and started looking in Wallara and Paddington. And they then started, they wanted to go into a home and they then started looking at an apartment, uh, which was a beautiful, gorgeous, grand apartment in one of those lovely old buildings. There's a lot of other old people in there. And it was just <laughs> like, do you... And I actually sort of said, look, I, it's gorgeous and I'm happy to support you, whatever you do, but really is this what you want to do And we've been talking about getting you into a home and we've talked about the gap between apartments and homes. Um, so just I want you to think carefully about making this decision. Was there kids around? No. No, okay. They don't have kids yet but they want to. Yeah, mm. I, because sometimes I can see that the, the pressure goes up. You know, the kids are going to be here at the end of the year. we just got to go find something. Yeah. And yeah. all of a sudden we've gone from buying a house to we're buying a two-bedroom unit and they're going to outgrow that in the next three years, um, you know, because become, you know, that's another bias. We become very, when when there's an emergency, we become very tunnel vision. Oh, tell me about um, it. <laughs> and we just want to get a solution and so we just got to buy something. You know, the kids are here and maybe the decision is don't buy the unit, let's be a bit patient here, have the baby and then. Or remember what you wanted. A lady I just sold for and we sold her house in her uh, partner had passed away. She was in her 50s and she's looking towards retirement. So it was going to be moving into an apartment that she could have a cat in. And we knew what sort of apartment she wanted and she wanted to stay around the local area because all her friends are here. And she, we said, if you don't find something, go and rent. She didn't want to rent, even though she had a cat and the cats are easy to rent with. Mm. I'm not going to rent, can't afford to, even though money's in the bank. She panicked as it got, you know, oh, she yeah. was staying with daughters, staying with friends, and she bought a little terrace with no parking in Roselle. Mm -hmm. And we went, oh. Out of area, everything. First one she looked at. Panic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she probably paid too much. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm going there. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the, I, mean, that's the uh, I can't possibly rent and, um, yes. you know. Don't want to move twice. Don't want to move twice. Don't want to move twice. things than renting. We can you help you with the move. people a lot of money. Exactly. And yeah. they will, move you know, everything go live for in a, you. stay in a hotel for three nights oh. and get everyone else to do it and you won't even have to see it. Yep. 
Um, I'm sure they that's can pack not, and have unpack. a great weekend. Yeah. Um, you know, moving yeah. doesn't have to be that bad. I mean, you, you talked about older generations and they don't want to leave the area. A big myth I find in the Sydney market is that a lot of people believe that there's going to be this huge shift and all these oldies are going to want to leave the eastern beaches. They're all <laughs> going to want to move to Jarvis Bay. Seriously? And they, um, all these properties are going to come on the market. Um, the problem is the Sydney's population gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Even if someone does sell in those areas, they stay in the area mm. and there's no more houses getting built. Um, so the, the demand for this housing just keeps growing, growing. and mm. growing and mm. growing. Scarcity. Um, and there's only so many houses and, and beautiful apartments. Mm. So um, and then when you add in, you know, migration and things like that, that's why we're seeing these, you know, you know Strong ridiculous prices, prices yeah. to people who aren't from these areas. Yeah. Um, it's, it's gonna, this pressure cooker will just keep mm. on growing. And we've got, I mean, the ageing generation is in this area is very fit. I mean, that's why mm. you look at the Pacific development. They were all downsizers from Dover Heights and Vaucluse. They're fit, healthy people who wanted to get out of their big homes into a place right on the beach, the Mark Moran up in Vaucluse. Yeah. You know, they're paying mm-hmm. 2 and $3 million for retirement homes up there. It's, um, it's, it's a different type of downsizers we have in this area, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, Marianne, you have given us some Great insights and certainly some insights into your market as well, which have been fantastic. I think also what you talked about in terms of the pre-auction offer process, I think that's something that buyers need to be very Mm. much aware of and I've certainly enjoyed our chat. So thank you so much for coming along. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Marianne. I mean, a few amazing things you talked about there about buyers and the mistakes they're making from a strategy point of view. I think that's very insightful there um, where, you know, buyers aren't really conscious that they're making these big decisions from a strategy point of view just unconsciously because they're just investing into the property and just thinking it's going to keep on going one way so I think that was very 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 cool thank you how can our listeners find out more about you if they need to Oh, well, I've got the Bondi Snapshot on YouTube, which is my little uh, fortnightly segment on what's happening in the market. Plus, I do like this, interviews with some people not to do with real estate um, and to do with the Bondi market, uh, fashionistas and things like that. Um, And also go to our website, ppdre.com.au. Fantastic. Well, we'll put the links into your uh, YouTube channel as well. And anything else that you think our listeners should be able to get access to, we'll pop those in the show notes. So thank you very much once again. Fantastic. Thank well, thank you. That was great. That was really good. There were yeah. some really, really good points in that. Excellent stuff. And you know what? We can have these conversations. I can pretty much do them every single day because, yes. you know, like we There's just. so many interesting things. Everyone brings something yeah. new. We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training is. Is really about what questions are important for buyers to ask. And if you think about it, it's anything that is going to give you an understanding of the real estate agent's process. Okay, so if you want to make an offer, rather than just say, oh, will they take offers prior to auction, it's a bit of a vague uh, question. If you ask something more specific like, well, I'm in a position to buy this prior, what happens if I make an offer? And then listen, listen to what they say. Some agents will have a very clear process and they will explain exactly what happens. Others will bumble and fluff around. Anyone that bumbles and fluffs, you're going to have to take control or just go to auction. But anyone who has a clear process, don't try and buck the system. Follow that process because trying to buck it is not going to win you friends or influence people. So, Veronica, what have we added to our Elephant Memory Bank this week? Well, one of the things buyers are always after is understanding when the best time to buy is. So, I've got a video on this very topic and we'll pop it in the show notes. 
In our next episode, we interview David Scholes, who is an extremely experienced auctioneer. David, in fact, was instrumental in my early career as he was the auctioneer for nearly every property that I sold back in the early 2000s. Now, over his career, he's conducted some 40,000 auctions and candidly shares with us his frustrations with sales agents and many examples of times when buyers have actually pushed themselves beyond their limits. He also talks about his role or the auctioneer's role in getting them to do just that and the extreme times when he's actually stopped mid-auction because a bidder was overstretched. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded and edited by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Me again. We're looking forward to spending more time with you and uncovering what's really going on in the world of real estate. Please subscribe. Be sure to send us a message, leave an iTunes review and tell your friends. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.